We're reading Ezekiel 34, starting at, at uh, verse 11. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places where they, have scattered, where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I'll bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. There they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I'll bind up the injured and strengthen the, the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. The second reading is Matthew 10, no, Matthew 9, sorry, verse 35 to 10, 15, which is on page 964, if you've got one of these. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the town, that home or town. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'll do keep that uh, passage open. I'll just make this a little bit closer for the sound guys. Um, keep that passage open in Matthew chapter 9 and we're going to be looking at that. In fact, we're just going to be focusing mainly on the first few verses. So uh, don't get disheartened when uh, 
it's been a few minutes and we're still only at the first verse. Uh, that's okay, that's the plan. Uh, but I, I wanted to start uh, tonight uh, with a question. Um, when we look around at the world, when we look around at the people in the world around us, who do we see? Who do you see? Do you see someone that you might not want to meet in a dark alley? Do you see people similar to you? Do you see people different to you? Maybe there's Acreage Andrew that you see, or Living in Town Tom. Maybe there's Sunnyside Susie or City Worker Cyril. Who do you see in the shops? at the school, in your street. When you get on the train, if you go to, go to work on the train and you get a seat, who do you see getting on the train? Maybe we just see people getting on with their life and so we think, well, I'll just get on with mine then as well. Maybe we see busy people. Maybe you see people that you think don't have much to do. Maybe we see self-sufficient people. People, you know, earning their own way, working along at things, not needing a lot of help. At least that's what it looks like. What do you see? Who do you see? You see, in our passage today, Jesus looks at the people around him and he doesn't see going well William or got it all together Gertrude. He sees shepherdless Sally and harassed Henry. He sees sheep without a shepherd. And it shows what's going on in his heart. You see, for what you see, what you notice, who you notice around you, how you see them, shows what's in your heart. As we look at this passage from Matthew tonight, as I said, we're just going to focus on those first few verses from chapter 9, 35 through to 38. They really kind of set the scene and expose God's heart to us. And through these verses, we'll see what Jesus sees. We'll see how Jesus responds and Jesus' urgent call. And there's uh, points there on the outline, on the flip side of the useful blank sheet. Uh, there's some words that you can use to follow along uh, with where we're going tonight. So then, firstly, what Jesus sees. Look with me at our passage, where our passage begins, verse 35, just there. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. This verse here, it's a bit of a summary verse, a summary verse about what's been happening uh, over the last little while. What has been happening? Well, Jesus has been teaching in the synagogues. He's, he's gone to the Jews of the area and the God-fearing Greeks, those who were, who were gathered uh, in the synagogue. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. God's kingdom is near, but the good news is there's forgiveness available now before the end. And he's also been healing every disease and sickness. As God's king come before the end, bringing forgiveness now he also brings a taste of that freedom and restoration from the brokenness and the destruction of this world. So from that big picture 
summary, that, that, that kind of big vista across the last few chapters, the cameraman zooms right in on the face of Jesus. And it's like Jesus looks up and stops and looks up and takes a breath and notices those around him. He sees the crowds flocking to him, gathered around him, crowding him in various towns and villages that he's been in, coming to him out in the countryside. Now, apart from the fact that there's just lots of people that Jesus is seeing here, what does he see? Well, look with me. It's the second half of verse 36. It's the top of the page if you've got the church Bible. He sees that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. Harass is, it's not a light word, not a small thing. Uh, the word sort of has its origin in, in the idea of, of originally meant to, to skin or to flay, to you know, really do some damage uh, to something. But it's got more of an idea now of this repeated attack, doesn't it? And combine that harassing with the helplessness of the sheep to respond or defend against it. And we might start to get a bit of an idea. Think for a minute about a flock of sheep. Uh, Without their shepherd out in the open, they are vulnerable, aren't they? Harassed by a wolf pack, the wolves would just come running in, wouldn't they? The flock scattered in different directions, smaller clumps of sheep getting picked off as the wolves just take their pick. This is what Jesus sees in the crowds, people harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, it might have been something that you've heard before. In fact, it has a history in the Bible. Moses, when he's on the edge of the promised land towards the end of Numbers, he's coming to the end of leading the time of his leading the people, and he says to God, he pleads with God, don't leave the people without a shepherd, don't let them be like sheep without a shepherd, give them a new leader. But also, just before those words that were read for us a little earlier, in Ezekiel chapter 34, we also see the way that God describes His people there. Chapter 34 verse 5, it's on the screen. My sheep were scattered, God says, because there was no shepherd. And, then, and when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. Why were God's sheep left exposed like this? Is this an indictment on God? Well, no, actually. It was the shepherds, those who had been appointed as shepherds, who were not doing their job. They were not, in fact, shepherding the people. What's this shepherding idea about? You know, if we, if we think about sheep and, and shepherding, you, you kind of associate, well, sheep need, you know, they food and water and, and shelter. Those are kind of the basic necessities. But the kind of shepherding that God is talking about is a different kind of shepherding. In one sense, it's a more basic and fundamental need, spiritual shepherding, leading in godliness leading to honour the one who created them. You see, where were the people of Israel at this time of history? 
when we read those words here in Ezekiel, where were the people? Well, they were in Babylon. They were in exile out of the land that God had promised to them. Removed, in fact, from the land by God because of their sin and rejection of Him. Who had led them there? Well, it was their leaders, the kings and priests who led them away from true worship of God. And the people followed willingly. So now they were under God's judgment, suffering the consequences of their rebellion, harassed and helpless in sin. Harassed and helpless in sin. And Jesus here, back in Matthew, is seeing the same thing before him. Even though the people were now back in the land, they were in the land of Israel. They were still in spiritual exile still stuck in their sin, still rejecting God and suffering the consequences. They were harassed and helpless. Their leaders were not leading them in godliness. You see, it's important to see here that it's not just the physical ailments that draws Jesus to this conclusion as he looks upon the crowd, but spiritual ones. Sure, there, was, there were some that we saw, with, with physical ailments, and Jesus heals them, but that's not the most important thing that Jesus sees. Think for a second about Matthew, the tax collector. I doubt that he would have gone without a meal each day or not had a place to stay, but he's the kind that Jesus has come for. Remember? He's come for not the healthy, but the sick, sinners. And so Jesus looks out on the mass of humanity. Without God's leadership, he sees them at the mercy of any and every predator, the wiles of the devil and their own sin. That was true for the crowds of the people that Jesus saw there. And it's also true in a broader sense for all of humanity in the absence of God's leadership. As we continue to reject God's leadership, we're powerless against our enemies. Against enemies from without one another and enemies from within our own sin. And so... In our world these days, as we reject God, defenceless confusion reigns. I don't know about you, but as I look around at the world, as I see some of the things that rate in the news, as I see different issues around, it feels like people are more and more than ever confused about life and relationships and without the defence against the wiles of the devil. It's interesting, actually, to notice, just on this point, just how contrary this is to humanity's view of humanity. On the whole, generally, we see ourselves as good people, as people who can make a difference. You know, we've got, we've got the UN. We've got the, the charters of human rights. We see ourselves as able to fix things up in some way, that we are the answer. I don't know about you, 
I said that before, but I don't know about you, but my wife and I, we like listening to a bit of Michael Jackson. Uh, she's a bit of a Michael Jackson fan. I kind of go along with that. I'm happy with that. Uh, but there's a song. I don't know if you know the song. Heal the world. Make it a better place. It's very catchy, isn't it? It's a lovely tune for you and for me and the entire human race. It's, it sounds lovely, doesn't it? But unfortunately, I think we're rather more Lord of the Flies-esque in the way that we act, in the way that we think. In what Jesus sees as he looks out on the world, a world indeed that is hostile and opposed to him, he sees people who are lost, who are distressed, who are defenceless in their own wiles, and this exposes the heart of God. This exposes his heart, God's view on the world. Now at this site, Jesus is moved to compassion. Verse 36, we see there, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them. Now compassion, it's a, it's a deep gut-wrenching emotion. It's not kind of a light and momentary, oh, the poor dears, and then move on, forget about it. But it's something deep within us that not just feels, but moves us to action. And this is how Jesus responds with compassion. Remember, at this point though, that it's not that the crowds were somehow beautiful or innocent, that anyone looking at them might just be moved to pity, hearts melting. Like when I show you uh, this photo. Uh, Oh, look at the little lamb. Or maybe this one. Oh, look in the grass and all. It's lovely. And if you like kind of, if you're more of a, a, a chocolate brown kind of Labrador kind of thing, what about, it's not a Labrador, but it's brown. Next one. Next, next slide, sorry. Oh, look at that. So soft and beautiful. Hearts melting. <laughs> this this is not what Jesus saw as he looked out on the crowds. These people were in bondage to sin, in slavery to wickedness, ravaged by others and ravaging one another. That's the, that's the effect of sin. Does Jesus respond with disgust at that? No, with compassion. This is the heart of God. The heart of this God that grieves over the destruction that the creation, His creation has brought upon itself. The chaos that the people that He made have careered headlong into with themselves in the driver's seat. This is the heart of the one who has compassion on those who in a few months' time are going to be calling out with vehemence, crucify Him, crucify Him. We can be tempted, I think, to look around and maybe see people, oh, you know, look, they've got what's coming to them. They've got what they deserve. Or maybe at the other end we see kind of successful, busy, self-sufficient people and we think, oh, they've got things together. They don't need anything. What do you see? 
Jesus sees people lost without God, harassed and helpless. This is the heart of God, a God who has compassion again and again to seek and save the lost. And this is the God who called and sought you. This is not just the heart of God that's exposed here. This is the heart of our God, of my God, of your God. This is the heart of the God that we follow. And so it should be our heart. He he leads us to have this as our heart too. Jesus' response here, it doesn't just end with him being deeply moved. His compassion leads him to his urgent call. It starts with him uh, sharing that observation or an observation with his disciples in verse 37. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's a bit of a different picture from where we've been, uh, ravaged sheep, but it's a harvest. It's a harvest that is big, that is enormous. But the workers are few. I don't think that Jesus is necessarily saying here where the harvest is plentiful in the sense that, I don't think he's saying that the field is ripe and, and that the harvest should necessarily be easy pickings. As if there should, we should just be walking down the street and saying we're a Christian and there'd be people falling at our feet saying, oh, what do I need to do to be saved? No, it's not like that. But rather, he's making the point that there are lots and lots of people. Lots of people who need to hear. Lots of people who are captive to sin. Lots of people who we need to to bring the good news of the kingdom to. There's much work to be done. And in the absence of workers, what's the action that Jesus wants them to take as the first step? Verse 38, he wants them to speak to the Lord of the harvest. Speak to the one who's in charge, the one who's in control. He wants us to share Jesus' heart for the lost and pray for them. That's part of what happens when we, when we pray, isn't it? That our hearts are moved towards those we pray. When we pray for those that we wrote on the back of our sheet, our hearts are moved toward them. What are they to ask? They're to ask him to send out workers into his harvest field, to bring more workers to the harvest, to send people to those who need to hear of him. We're not to think here that because Jesus is asking them to make this request, that God is unwilling and he's, he's a, a man that need, or someone who needs to be, to be pleaded with to do what is what is good, or, or that he's even making kind of a last-ditch appeal for extra help because he, he, he underestimated the harvest and now he's not prepared. No, it's not like that. Rather, this indeed shows God's desire for us to be involved. He wants us to see the need, to see the harvest and share his heart too. He wants us to call on him to send people into the harvest. And just as he goes on in, in chapter 10, as we saw read for us, sending out the 12, 
And later on in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, where he sends out the disciples to the, to the ends of the earth this time, he wants to draw us into being those who are sent by him into the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest then to send out workers into his field. Now the thing that strikes me when I read this is that God doesn't plan to just involve himself in doing it. You know, surely if you think about it, he could have achieved his plans and purposes without us, without you and me. He could have done the whole bringing in without the disciples. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that, why doesn't God do that? Like, surely it would be better, more efficient, you know, he's in command, in control, that he could just, he could do it all himself and he wouldn't have all the complications of us kind of stuffing up or putting our foot in our mouth and all the other kinds of things that we can do. But that's just not how God works. I don't know if you've heard that saying, but the saying goes, if you want something done properly, you've got to do it yourself but not with God. With God, it's different. When God wants something done properly, He says, you've got to do it with someone else. You've got to do it with someone else. You see, our God is not a kind of singular individual that keeps to Himself, is He? We said uh, those words of the Apostles' Creed a little earlier. Our God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's been in loving relationship for all eternity, perfect relationship. Honestly, what could you want more than that? What more could you want? But to share that with others. To, to make people and, and bring them in to experience that loving relationship, that joy of perfect love. And that's his big plan, isn't it? That's what he's doing. That's what he's drawing all of us toward. But what we see here today is that's not just the end point that he's drawing us towards, but it's the way that he's getting us there too. He's not just bringing all of us kind of as individuals all the way up to him but he's involving us in the process on purpose. If you're a Christian, then you're on God's harvest team. God works in teams. This is the heart of God exposed. A God whose joy it is, not to just keep everything to himself so he can do it all perfectly, but to use weak and fumbling and broken, but now recreated people just like us. Using us in his plan to bring more and more from death to life with him. Doing through us spiritually what he Jesus has been doing physically in the Gospels. Remember that little girl from last week? This is the joy that our God is inviting you and me into. He started with just a team of 12 and now his harvest team is worldwide and you 
are in it. And so here we see the heart of God. He sees broken humanity all around him. How are we going to keep what Jesus sees in our minds, in our hearts? Pray. Pray. Ask God to help us to keep seeing as he sees. Seeing how he sees. Because how we see, who we see, shows what's in our hearts. Pray that this prayer to send out workers into the harvest is on our lips, moved by compassion. Bring more people onto the team, Lord. Help us to see that we're on the team, Lord. Pray that together. Pray that by yourselves. We've got not just a command but a privilege to ask the one who's in control. What comes out of our lips in prayer shows what's on our hearts. And let's keep taking the next steps together. Taking up our place on God's harvest team. Sharing in the joy of our God being on his team as he uses us to bring in the harvest. Amen.